What a joy to be able to sing about the Lord's goodness and to know as we talked about and prayed about before the service that those are not just fake words that we're singing. Those are not words that we kind of sincere about, but mm, we're not sure we mean it. Every person up here singing that from their heart because they know and have experienced it being true. The Lord is good and he is faithful and he is a strong tower and a mighty fortress to us. One of the best things that we can do as parents and as a church is to bring up children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. The Bible says, train up a child in the way that they should go. And when they're old, they will not depart from it. You see that in the core of what we're doing as a church in terms of Awana and training our kids in the junior high and senior Bible studies. I had the joy of being raised by parents who love the Word of God and who taught the Word of God. And then on an added bonus to that, uh, I had a really fine pastor growing up. And to be able to hear the Word of God preached uh, unashamedly and strongly and, and exegetically week after week, um, I, I think I realized it at the time, but now that I get on this side of it and I'm older and my voice is going for some reason because I've been singing too much, um, you realize what a great value that is. And... Most of you, I think, are here at this church because you love the Word of God and you love to hear the Word taught. Well, that value uh, that is in me came from my parents and especially um, from being under my father's ministry for so many years. So it is a joy and delight for our special services this morning uh, to have my father, Dr. Ross Rhodes, here. He, is, uh, he pastored Calvary Church in Charlotte, very large church, for 23 years. And for the last, I don't know how many years, uh, has been working with the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. He's the chaplain and travels around the world. I cannot keep up with his schedule. He and my mother are in all remote reaches of the world. Um, but one thing that I respect, and I've told you this as a congregation, is every time he preaches, it's fresh. He doesn't just, well, I'll just pull one out of the hopper and preach this one. Uh, he'll teach six or seven times a week uh, to the Billy Graham staff or when they're on a crusade. And uh, every time, it's fresh study of the Word of God. How many know that that's good? How many know that when we approach the Bible, that we need to approach it fresh every time and never just say, well, I don't know, I'll just read something again. So I want to bring up my father, Dr. Ross Rhodes. I'm going to ask you to give him a good Harbor Rock welcome. Thank you, Paul. Wow, good morning, everybody. I'd love to take that choir with me, if you'd all volunteer. Most of the churches these days don't have choirs. In fact, almost all of them. The uh, churches in California are called Calvary Chapels. And uh, we were there last Sunday, and they have uh, four services in the morning and one at night. And uh, in each service, there are about 2,000 people, just in the one, that's in Gardena, and no choir. And... Uh, but according to the news this week, this Glee movement, have you heard about that? Uh, choirs are going to come back in high schools, so maybe we'll get choirs back in churches. Do you have this choir every Sunday? Well, they're not paid. You ought to ask them to volunteer, <laughs> right? Everybody's on faith in this church. Well, what an absolute delight and very humbling to be introduced by Pastor Paul this morning and to be with Julie and the children. And... Uh, we have uh, a delight because Jacob, their son, is 12 today. We won't sing, but one, two, three, let's say happy birthday, Jake. 
One, two, three. Happy birthday, Jay. And we have uh, our, <laughs> we have a daughter, Kathleen and Tom, his son-in-law, and they have four. And uh, their first daughter, we saw her last week in California. She's going to have a baby boy. And uh, then they have another daughter, and she's a teacher down in Florida. And the third daughter is uh, Kirsten. And Kirsten graduates from Wheaton in a couple of months. And Kirsten met uh, a guy by the name of Scott Anderson, tall, handsome, but he doesn't have any money. But he's a nice fellow. <laughs> and uh, they're here today. So will you welcome them? I think we'll ask the young couple to be married to stand over here. Stand up, you guys. There they are. But we grandparents will take care of the grandchildren, right? How many have grandchildren this morning? Good. The, I noticed the older folk, like Ross and Carol, sit in the back of this church. And uh, very interesting, the back row is uh, my age. I have a birthday coming up, and I, I have a, a, a big number this next year. And I understand when you hit this number, uh, your Social Security is in Roman numerals. So my life is going to change. Karen and I have been married 54 years, and uh, we're grateful for that. And We have uh, uh, 11 grandchildren. So we're grateful for family, and it's nice to be with family this weekend. How convenient, and uh, that's special. Uh, speaking of family, uh, my father died at the age of 98. My mother died when I was a student at Wheaton. She fell in the snow at 53. But my father was 16 a hundred years ago today. Uh, he was uh, 16. That would be, uh, yeah, 2010. Let's take the stats from uh, 1910. If uh, you uh, were living in 1910, your adult lifespan would be about 47. Uh, you would make uh, 20 cents an hour. You would make 200 to 400 dollars a year. If you were a dentist, you'd make uh, about 2,500. Civil engineer, about 4,000 a year. Uh, 95% of all babies that were born were born uh, not in a hospital but in homes. 90% of all the doctors had no college education. That's a little scary. Uh, we just flew over Las Vegas. There were 30 people living in Las Vegas 100 years from today. Uh, let's see, 14%, only 14% of uh, the population in the United States had a bathtub. Uh, only 8% had a telephone. There were only 8,000 cars 100 years ago and only 140 miles of paved roads. Can you imagine that? Only 6% of the, of the population uh, graduated from high school. And uh, coffee was 14 cents a pound before Starbucks. Say amen. Yeah. They just raised their price. This was, this was 100 years ago. It's hard to imagine the changes that have taken place in 100 years. And uh, for those of us today with all our opportunities and with all of the technology and uh, heard this week now, you can, if you were a former Roman Catholic, 
my mother's side, they were Roman Catholic. My father's side, they were Lutheran and Methodist. I married a Baptist, so you know the kind of omelet I am. And, uh, but you now can confess on your palm. I, have you heard about this? Yeah, you dial a priest. This is serious. I mean, it's not really serious, but it's true. So you don't have to go to the confession. How many are former Roman Catholics and you went to confession? Yeah. Well, you wouldn't have to do that before you take Mass. You now can do it on your phone. You dial your priest. You got a priest in the palm of your hand, right? We used to think we were in the palm of the hand of the Pope. But uh, now you can just confess. In fact, you can say to the priest, I don't like you. I never did. Don't like the church. But these are my sins, Father. You can clear it up that way. Things are getting so easy. It's amazing. We're grateful to be part of this age, but it's getting more confusing all the time. I'd like to talk this morning, uh, not as long as Paul talks, but I would like to talk this morning (laughs) on the subject, the leading indicators that suggest that the Lord may be about ready to come. There's a rural church in Hickory, North Carolina, and it had on its sign... The trumpet is out of its case. What a line. Because the Bible says the trumpet shall sound and the dead in Christ will rise first and we who are alive and remain shall suddenly be caught up. Uh, We were in uh, uh, Amsterdam speaking of the Lord's coming and I had a camera and needed it fixed. Went into a little shop and he said, I'll have it fixed by tomorrow. I said, are you going to be here? He said, unless he comes... And I said, what? He said, unless he comes. I said, are you a believer? He said, yeah. And he said, if the Lord comes, he said, your camera will be here. But he said, I'll be on the way up. I love that. (laughs) So unless he comes. And I'd like you to take your Bible, please, and turn to the Gospel of Luke in the New Testament. We'll look at two passages, please. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 21. And a second passage in 1 Thessalonians 4 in a couple of minutes. Now, most of us have been stunned by the events in the Middle East. Paul has been to the Middle East three or four times. And uh, when he went, that was before he was married, uh, there wasn't any concern about safety. We have a granddaughter at Liberty University And she is uh, about to go on a study tour to Israel. But they're questioning whether uh, there is uh, an alert that maybe she shouldn't go. Because there are 21 nations that circle Israel that have signed a document, not only the PLO and the Hamas and Hezbollah, that they would like to destroy Israel and wipe her into the sea. The second enemy is the United States. We're a little too uh, far away, but with the nuclear capacity of Iran, it would be possible at least for them to hit Zurich and London and maybe, uh, maybe New York City. That's a far away threat, but if their desire is to destroy the Satan, which is the United States of America, and Israel, of course, we would come to the aid of Israel, But the Israeli uh, F-15s are already fired up. Half of them, they say, they are on the runway and could be started immediately because Cairo 
is four minutes away, and uh, Tehran is about seven minutes away. They're right there in the heart of it. The Bible calls it the navel of the earth, which is where Israel is. And uh, they have formidable enemies right next door. So uh, it's important this morning that we talk about that because of the events in Libya and Bahrain and uh, probably in Jordan, which is just over the hill. And we know certainly uh, the enemy of Israel and the United States, not that we're picking on any nation, is Iran. And these nations now all of a sudden, some would think it was a conspiracy, but all of a sudden are beginning to tumble. We've known about Mubarak for more than 30 years. We have given Egypt on an average of $4 billion cash every year. And then we learned that Mubarak has probably 7 or $8 million in the Swiss bank alone. And we have known about Gaddafi, uh, even though we've welcomed him to Washington. And uh, we have known of their uh, persecution of the people, which has been fierce. We've known about this, but it, it's almost as if the heat is up. And uh, these nations, if they began to tumble, or as the press, this is all press, this is not from the Bible, that they would be tumbling like dominoes, that they would once and for all become a consolidated force in their hatred, either, either over or over against Israel. And that would be extremely... Uh, that would be a prelude, like some of these tracks, uh, to the coming of what the Bible calls the man of sin. Now, he's called the man of sin or the man of lawlessness. In other words, he makes up his own laws. Uh, this age of lawlessness is umpired by, we could call him, the world leader. He's described in two ways, the man of sin, he makes his own laws, and also he's called anti or against Christ. And we certainly know that uh, the religion of Islam is against Christ. And we know that is probably the rub that goes back to Abraham and Sarah and uh, the story of Isaac and Jacob. But it is interesting that when you talk about prophecy, which is prediction, prophecy is two things. It's saying this is going to happen. And that is said before the events take place. It's a forecast, like tomorrow it's going to snow or whatever. That would be a prophecy. Or it's a commentary on what's taking place. For instance, do you remember when Peter was preaching at uh, Pentecost? These people spoke in languages that they had no education in. So if they didn't know Italian or Latin, they would be speaking in Latin. If they didn't know Greek, they were speaking in Greek language. In fact, there are 11 different languages mentioned in Acts where when the Holy Spirit came, people began to speak in languages in which they were not educated, a great phenomenon. And at that time, Peter stands up and he says, we're not drunk, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. But what you're hearing is that which Joel the prophet spoke. So he quotes Joel that in the last days, people would speak in these uninterpreted languages and they would see visions and there would be a new era. 
This is that of which Joel spoke. In other words, Joel forecast it, and I now, in a contemporary way, interpret it. This is what prophecy is. Now, if you take all the words of the Bible, every 25th word would talk about events that are yet to take place. There are more passages in the Bible about events that are to take place than there were about the coming of Jesus Christ or other prophecies as it related to Edom or some of the other countries. I hope I'm not confusing you. The point is that this scripture is alive. It's relevant. It's relevant and alive for people if you preach the gospel, as Pastor Paul has. What a church you have. This is amazing, just absolutely amazing, the worship and the love and the embracing of this people. There's a lady here by the name of Bonnie, and uh, for the last two or three years, she would wait on us in the waitress, as a waitress in the, in the room. She's here today. She's a member of your church. Say amen. There's another lady I met in the hall. Uh, she is one of the housekeeping staff. Her name is Bertha. And she said, do you remember me? And I said, yes. She said, well, you prayed for me a couple of times. And uh, I said, well, how's your daughter? She has a daughter who's an addict. And she's taking care of six children, imagine, on the income she makes from this hotel. Sweet lady. And uh, she can't come in because, of course, she's working. That would be bad for her job. But if she gets a Sunday off, she's going to be here. The point is that loving people and caring for them and being good to them and, and praying for them and telling them about Jesus is relevant. It changes the life. How many have been changed by the love of Christ and the word of the gospel? Absolutely. He's the way, the truth, and the life. So the gospel is relevant. But it's also this Bible is relevant and applicable for events in the newspaper. Uh, 25 or 30, I've been preaching for about 50 years, uh, you didn't find anything in current events. A hundred years ago, there wasn't a single Arab nation. Fifty years ago, when I was in graduate school, uh, no one talked about Islam. Now, we knew the passages in the Bible that said Egypt and Libya and North Africa and Syria and Iraq and Iran, they were mentioned in the Bible as part of a consolidated force being led by Russia to invade the Middle East. That's in the Bible, in Ezekiel and Jeremiah. Now, we knew about that, but it was not relevant. It didn't make any sense. And the fact that there would be a Russia, right? There wasn't a Russia 50 years ago. It was the Soviet Union. So a lot of the prediction of the Bible didn't make sense until the last 15 or 20 years. And if you think of that in the light of today's context, it, uh, it makes a big difference. Now, why do I make a lot about that? That's been a long introduction. Because when it comes to our Lord Jesus, he picks up a piece of history that was to take place in the short term in 72 A.D., and projects it to 1948. Because nothing in the scripture is mentioned unless it relates to Israel. Nothing in scripture about other nations is mentioned, other nations are not mentioned, unless it relates to Israel. 
The United States is not in the Bible. Egypt is in the Bible. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 19 that there will be a great highway between Syria and Egypt. And God will bless Egypt. And Egypt will be a center of worship. And the cities of Egypt will speak Hebrew. Can you imagine that? So there will be a revival in the last times created by Messiah for Egypt. Other nations are appointed for judgment. So these passages didn't make any sense or were not even preached when my dad was alive. And when I was a student 50 years ago, we studied it, but it could not be interpreted in the light of the news. Now the news has made everything very visible. It's like a zoom lens. We're like pieces of a puddle, puzzle. Let me use that illustration. Uh, my wife, Carol, came from a family that played games. We never played games in the Rhodes family. We played in the street with a stick and a tennis ball. But uh, her family, they, they played games. And the lane part of the family, the daughter, they're all game players. Well, I, oh, it's okay, but uh, I've never been a game player. But uh, the last time we were here... Um, uh, Annie and Carol did a puzzle, a thousand pieces. Well, that would cause me to want to go to Target or something or do something else. I took a picture of it on my iPhone, and they, they made this puzzle, a beautiful puzzle, a thousand pieces, imagine. And Carol's all, always learned to take the outside of the puzzles. I could do that, the ones with the, you know, on the squares. How many don't like puzzles with me? Put your hand up. Yeah, okay, all right. But you get the picture. You build the outside first, like the frame. Then when it comes to the sky, I really want a cup of coffee and leave the table, right? But the pieces of puzzle begin to shape. You don't necessarily have the picture on the box. In the Bible, you have the outside pieces. And then as events kaleidoscope and come together, you begin to see the picture coming events. That's what I'd like to do this morning, just in two passages about an indicator. We say that in the marketplace, in stocks, or in finances, or in building, or uh, anything that has to do with the forecast of how the economy is going. These are the leading indicators. The leading indicator yesterday in the paper was that China now has surpassed Japan as the number second economy in the world. Well, actually, they're the first economy, but we haven't woken up to that. They have $2.3 trillion in cash in reserve. $2.3 trillion in reserve, like in a savings account. And we are paying them billions interest because they've loaned us money. You can tell that's a leading indicator, right? Kind of scary. And we hope you all solve this problem, Wisconsin. Uh, the whole world knows about you. If they didn't know about you with the, with the Packers, they know about you now, right? So pray for Wisconsin, amen? Yeah, because yeah, some of you may be in the unions and some of you may be scratching your head and you don't know which way it's going to go. But it's serious, right? Leading indicators. The number one leading indicator as it relates to these facets that I've explained about, that Israel is forecast, that no nation is mentioned unless it relates to Israel, and that God will bring Israel back to the land. She did that in 1948. 
She's a nation with a flag and with the best army in the Middle East. Thank you very much. Jesus picks up that fact in Luke chapter 21. Thank you for turning. I know you've been waiting to read. The Lord says in verse 20, after some other comments about uh, kingdoms rising against kingdoms and earthquakes and so on, like at Christ Church. That's a beautiful city. We've been there. And to believe that 80% of it is in ruin. I can understand about Haiti. We've been there a half a dozen times. The cathedral in Haiti is down. The White House in Haiti is down. But there's not many significant structures. But when you get to Christ Church, that's a beautiful, beautiful city. Uh, our Lord mentions some of these things that are more global than local. Less than 100 people die from hurricanes, even though that's a terrible thing and frightening to this part of the country or down in Missouri. But the thing that Jesus talks about, let me just digress just a minute. I really am trying to make it clear, is that these are global patterns. Jesus said, when these things begin to come to pass, it's like uh, Kirsten's sister, Rachel. We had breakfast with her uh, on Thursday, and she really is showing. She's about seven weeks. Well, she'll have a birth pang. And Jesus said, like a woman who is expecting, there's a birth pang. And you say, oh, something's coming. And Jesus said, when these things begin to come to pass, and you have the birth pang, the word he uses, then you know that the emerging events will squeeze and the end of the age at that time will take place. But notice in verse 11 and verse 10 of Luke 21, he speaks about kingdoms. Now, that's a new word. Seventy-five years ago, there was not a kingdom of Bahrain. There was not a kingdom of Saudi Arabia. That's a brand new word. It wasn't in the Middle Ages, kingdoms. Our Lord picks this word up. Of course, he used it earlier by saying the kingdom of God is in you. And it meant a ruling totalitarian centralized government with a primary leader who makes all the decisions. And Jesus said the fact that this primary leader, God, and of course myself, if I would rule in your heart, if I would give you all the laws, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, blessed are the poor in spirit, and so on. These are rules. Every rule that God makes, he makes for your good. There's not a single law in the Bible that's for your detriment. Thou shalt not steal, he says. The Bible says, work with your hands if you can, and get a job, right? Thou shalt not bear false witness. Don't lie, because a lie is like being pregnant. You're eventually going to have to tell another lie, and another lie, and finally you get a baby lies. You can't back up. Aren't you glad the Bible says God cannot lie? Let the church say amen. He can't change his mind, never backs up. Hallelujah for that. That's the promises of God. So the laws of God are for your good. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Sex outside of marriage is an abomination to God and a mess for your life, right? One woman, one man. If it's a second marriage or a third marriage, God gives you another chance. Do it right this time. We had a couple in our church. Together they had nine marriages. Can you imagine that? And they're still together. Let the church say amen. <laughs> Love is not better the second time around. But if you have a second time around, 
the Bible says, and God appeared to Jonah a second time. So don't let that be a hang-up in your life. Say goodbye to guilt and go on, but stay with it because it's for your good, right? So when we have the kingdom of God, we have the reign of God, Jesus Christ, in our hearts. And he says, in the last days, kingdoms will come against kingdoms, right? And nations against nations. Remember, remember, this isn't about maybe 32 A.D., when there weren't nations. The whole world was controlled by Rome. One leader, one nation, Rome. Eighty percent of the world were slaves. That's why when Paul says, I'm a Roman citizen, that gave him an edge, even though he was a Jew. So there weren't nations and kingdoms that could rise up against each other. Rome had controlled the world. So even that is an insight, right? Now look at verse 20. And when you see Jerusalem encircled by armies, then know that the desolation is nigh. Run to the mountains. These are the days of vengeance. Really difficult for a woman who is expecting. And there will be great distress in the land. Mark that. In the land. And wrath upon this people. Now this happened in 72 AD. As a matter of history, go to Google and uh, punch up Titus. Titus, 72 AD. The Romans got sick and tired of being sick and tired with the Jews. They came in Jerusalem. They destroyed it. They sacrificed pigs on the altar. They slew probably 75,000 Jews. They plowed up Jerusalem and sowed the entire area in salt. So it was desolate for many, 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 many years until the Jewish people came back and, and renewed the land, which is part of prophecy. So this happened then. And you can tell it happened then, even though he doesn't mention Titus. He's forecasting the future, right? You read, they shall fall by the edge of the sword. They shall be led away to nations. So what do you have here, uh, church? You have the destruction of Jerusalem. You have the people in the city dying. You have people fleeing. That's the story of Masada, when they went down to Masada and down to Petra. Then you have these people in this city, these Jewish people, being dispersed, being dispersed to all the nations. Remember, there aren't any nations. There's only one. I mean, there are nations, but they're all under Rome. And in 1948, because of the Second World War, the Jews are dispersed back into the land of Israel. My father fought in the First War, and uh, in the Second War... Uh, Second World War, it was said to be the war of all wars that never have a war again. Well, from 17 to 33 is 20 years. There's a great war. 20 million people died in the Second World War, right? And at that time, Resolution 242 in the United Nations decided, it started back in 1917 with the Balfour Resolution, that the Jewish people would be given the land. And the Brits controlled what we would call Palestine or today Israel. And Israel was allowed to be a land. There were people there, of course. Many of them had secretly come in. But the nation was birthed. And from Europe, from the United States, from all over the world, people came. In the original uh, uh, communes, 
they came. Today there are three symphony orchestras in Jerusalem, one total Russian-speaking or Slavic-speaking people. It's incredible. There are 10 million Afro uh, uh, people who claim that they were the children of the, the Queen of Sheba, and they're Jewish, established they are Jewish, and they've moved back into Israel. Israel's welcomed them. They're part of the nation. We have a tremendous, tremendous gathering from all over the world. Those that were dispersed and scattered have come back into the land. And Israel is now 60 years old. It's tremendous. Now, look at the next verse. It's long and heavy for you, but look at this. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. In other words, Gentile, non-Jews, will have the control of Jerusalem and the land. The word land, right down there in verse 23. Incidentally, the word land is mentioned 92 times in the Old Testament. God says there are four things that are his. My land, my city, right? My son, and my people. We are the people of God by salvation through Christ. They are the people of God through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Jerusalem is his city. Washington's not mentioned in the Bible. Frankfurt is not mentioned in the Bible. Okay? My city, my land, my son, and my people. They shall be in the land, then they will be scattered until the time when Gentiles don't have anything more to do with the city of Jerusalem. That's 1948. Now the city of Jerusalem is totally under the hands of Jewish people. In fact, the Jewish people call Jerusalem their capital. The Palestinians don't like that because they claim part of it is their capital and they're nestled on the Mount of Olives. And now the Israelis are putting settlements up there. It's a big issue. But this city now is totally controlled by the Israelis. And you can go to Jerusalem. It's the safest safest city probably in the world today. And they've been having airport security forever and have never had anything happen at the airport. A God to help us in our airports, right? Well, you travel, just thank God you can take a bus or take your car. It's not fun anymore. That's just a side comment to make me feel better that I'm in pain that we travel all the time. <laughs> Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until that time ceases, right? And the Jewish people are now in the control. You couldn't have said that 25 years ago with any real authority. I mean, you could have, but there weren't these other configurations. Are you with me this morning? Okay. Now look at the next line. There'll be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars. We don't see them. Lots of prophecy is half this and half that's not yet. All right? But there will be distress of nations and perplexity of the nations. Now, look up in your Bible. The word perplexity is only used in the Bible one time. It's a very rare word. And it means, I don't know. It means, anybody got an idea? It means that nations don't know what to do. They can't solve the problem. Last week in the United Nations, a leader said, the problems of the world are beyond us. 
Who can stop what's going on there? The headlines of the last couple of days are now complaining about Obama, that he's not doing anything about Libya. What could he do about it? I hope we don't put our planes in the air. That's really not our business, right, uh, in my opinion. Uh, this is my opinion. And, uh, but he mentioned Mubarak dozens of times. In fact, they have this on the clip. But he's never mentioned Gaddafi. Well, of course, there's an oil situation there. But suppose these nations continue to collapse and become the dominant force in the Middle East. So just suppose. It could happen, right? Bahrain is now in trouble. Libya and Tunisia, where Arafat used to live. He died, incidentally, of sexual disease. These things are not just incidental. The world sees this. This revolution is made possible by Google and by the telephones and whatever. Everything is so visible and immediate. It's instantaneous. And remember that the Bible says when the man of sin, the ruler, controls and he has worship for himself in the city of Jerusalem, two of the prophets are slain and they're in the street. And the Bible says the whole world can see them. And the Bible says of the coming of Christ, and every eye will see him. Every eye will see him. Imagine what you can get instantly today, 25 years ago. I mean, 30 years ago, nobody had a cell phone. If you had a phone, I had one. It was in the car. It was about the size of this, and you lifted it up and plugged it in. Boy, I thought I was hot stuff. I had a phone <laughs> in the car, right? Now look at what my iPad can do. Just think of it. I mean, the ability to track and to see things. Nations are in perplexity and nations are in distress. Time magazine a month ago said this is the age of anxiety. That's biblical. You can read the newspaper and go to the Bible. It's kind of like a mirror. Nations fearing or being afraid of what is to come. Suppose there is a common currency. Well, China says that. They're forcing our hand now. China says we should have no more dollar, but the Brazilian, the yen, and uh, the Deutschmark, whatever, there should be five currencies, and they all should be pulled together, and the average value of the five should set the market as to what money is worth. Heretofore, it's been the dollar. And before Nixon, it was the gold that we had that backed the dollar. Now, that's not the case. The government can take all of your gold right this minute. Now, if you have sterling or Cougarans or Swiss gold, they can't seize that because they don't have any record of it. But when you buy American gold, U.S. gold, they have a record of that. And the government can say the gold's not worth any money. And remember, the man of sin, this world leader, is an economic man. The two things about the man of sin or the world ruler, number one, he brings peace to the world temporarily. He causes all the enemies of Israel to sit in the back of the bus and gives Israel a guarantee on their land for three and a half years. That's Bible, right? The second mark, which is really the mark, and that's why the 666 comes in, but the mark, which is what the German is called, you know, the mark, and when you couldn't read or write, only 6% of the people 100 years ago uh, went to high school. Uh, so many people couldn't even write. You made your mark. It was an X. And you know the word bank means bench or mark. 
So think of it apart from just a number, right? That's a distraction. Only God knows that. You'll eventually uh, have maybe more teaching about that, but nobody has the answer to that. Forget it. The capacity of this man of sin is he controls money. The Bible says you can't buy or sell without his mark, without his approval, without his number, whatever it is. I have a social security number, right? Well, then we'll get a smart card and whatever. I don't know. They're putting these chips in dogs. That's way ahead. Uh, That's not in the Bible. What is in the Bible is that the economy is controlled by one person who establishes the currency and whose currency is only of value in the marketplace. So that's why the Bible says you can have a whole wheelbarrow of money, as it was in Germany before Hitler came. You had all kinds of currency. I mean, it was worth really nothing, like the Italian lira. This economy is coordinated and controlled by one person. So you have distress of nations. You have fear of what's coming. You have various signs, which I don't know what that is, and nobody does at this point. But there is some kind of, listen, convolution. Something takes place in the atmosphere. Something takes place in the seas. Some, some uh, geographic uh, undulation, something that seems to unsettle uh, even nature itself. All of these things begin to tumble. It's the global. It's the pieces of puzzle. It's not just one thing. It's a half a dozen things, and the picture begins to take place. And Jesus said, at that time, the baby's coming, Matthew 24. At that time, he says, look up, for your redemption draws nigh. Now, we'll talk about that for the next couple of minutes and quit. So here's what I've been trying to say. The world has totally changed in a hundred years. In the hundred years that have passed, things have so changed, our grandparents uh, would not recognize anything that goes on today. In the meanwhile, in 1948, the Jewish people, which are the center of all prophecy or future events, are belched out of the nations of the earth and the control of the city of Jerusalem is gone by Gentiles, goyim is the Hebrew word, and controlled only by Jews. That is a very, very significant and obvious indicator that there is a pattern that's going to take place. Perplexity of nations, distress, fear of what's going to come, and the various rising of kingdoms and nations and so on, let alone the word pestilence. The word pestilence means a sickness that is a plague. AIDS is a plague. Franklin Graham and Samaritan's Purse that I served with, we had the first AIDS conference coordinated by Christian people in Washington 10 years ago. We spent $10 million with the best research. All the people, United Nations, and everybody came together at the Hilton in Washington. And every scholar, every, not Christian, every scholar said there is no solution to the AIDS problem. Maybe 10 or 15 years, there might be a solution. It is pandemic. That means it's spreading so fast. And it's now taking place in China. It's incredible. That's a pestilence. 
In 1910, you could buy marijuana and heroin at the drugstore. There was no drug problem. In 1910, there were only 240 reported murders in the United States. The problems today are without solution, just totally without solution. And the idol, speaking of American idol, I hope as a Christian you'll see through that facade. The idols are our Gaga, Madonna. I mean, some of these words sound like I'm in uh, China or something. Christians are watching these programs. Christians are TiVoing them. Speaking about I adore him, people say, oh, I just love. Oh, I hope she wins. You can tell that we become part of the world. The Bible says, love not the things that the world loves, nor the things that are in the world. If any man love what the world loves, listen, the love of God is not in you. If the world likes it, you should spit it out. What God loves, you should love. And I want to tell you, what God loves, the world can't stand. John Stewart, that comedian, whatever his name is, he was on the uh, O'Reilly show, and he said, the Bible is, and I won't say the next word, but I said, the Lord will take him if the Lord is patient, he'll probably allow him to live. But you can curse the scripture. You can take Jesus' name in vain. You can walk into one of these houses and they say, oh, my God, oh, my God. That's taking the name in vain. The Lord will not hold you without guilt if you take his name in vain. The casual things that we've learned to live with are beginning to seep in our society. And Jesus said, when he comes, he will have to tell the angels, she's a believer, he's not. He's a believer, she's not. The wheat and the tares will grow together. And there is this, this subtle likeness of believers and not believers. Please, church, uh, a year from now, ten years from now, I'll be gone. But don't become more like the world. Become more like Jesus. Don't become more like the, what the world writes and what the world entertains itself with. Become more like Jesus. Get yourself in the place where you're ready for the redemption. You'll not be like those young ladies who didn't have oil in the lamp, which is the Holy Spirit. I preached to pastors last week in California. One of the verses I used was, Paul was desperately afraid he would be a castaway. I have 33 friends that I went to school with, Wheaton and graduate school, who are not in the ministry, who have fallen away and died early in sin. A castaway. Don't you be a believer that's a castaway. Keep clean for the Lord. Keep, keep your life confessed up, we used to say. Now, the passage I want to draw attention to, please, quickly, is in Thessalonians. We are not to be afraid of these events. We're not children of fear. We're not children of darkness. We are not children of wrath. The difference between 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Thessalonians 5 is the personal pronoun. 
In four, it's we. In five, it's they. That's a wonderful Bible illustration. When it says they, it means non-believers. When it says we, it means believers. That's the story of the book of Hebrews. They did not enter into rest, but we enter into rest, right? In chapter 4, it speaks about believers who believe in Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 14. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, since we are following him, the people that have died, they will be resurrected. The people who are alive will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Chapter 5, it says, but you know about the day of the Lord? That's for those people who are the children of the darkness. We are the children of the light. They will be surprised. You won't have to be surprised. And it says in verse 9 of chapter 5, the wrath will fall upon them. We have obtained salvation. So there's the difference. Now, without going over each verse, let's repeat for ourselves what we're trying to understand in the fourth chapter. He is saying that those people have died, and you're wondering what's going to happen to them, because Jesus said, if I go away, I'll come again. And the apostles were still alive there, and they remember when Jesus ascended, the message came. They were angels, but they looked like human beings. They were standing there like they were in a crowd. They weren't winged angels. They were men. And the men standing with them said, as you see him go up, in like manner he will come again. Why do you stand here gazing? You heard what he said. Go into all the world and preach the gospel and so on. As he goes up, he will come down. As you see him in heaven, you will see him in heaven again. So the disciples expect, since Jesus said, I go away, I will come again. And the apostles, they preached that, John 14. What happened now, my mother died. My mother died when I was 58. So the point, uh, when she was 54, the point is believers have died and Jesus didn't come. What about them? And Paul says, don't be ignorant. Don't be, and the word is moronic. Don't, don't be like that. Understand that when he comes, those that have died in Christ will be resurrected, right? Because they are a witness to the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ needs one more signature. The signature to the proof of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the resurrection of Christians, right? Because when Christians are resurrected, people say, wow, there is resurrection from the dead. You're not like a candle that you blow out. That there is life beyond the grave, right? So the dead in Christ will rise, and we who are alive, the word is caught up. I like the word rapture because it means joy, but it's not the real word. Evacuation is the better word. They should be drawn up. Like in some of these floods where you have this helicopter and he goes over and he lifts somebody out of a tree. That's the meaning of this word. They shall be evacuated to meet the Lord in the air. Right? Hallelujah for that. The dead in Christ will rise. We who are alive shall be evacuated and caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Then he says, get alongside of each other and comfort one another. That doesn't mean, oh, I'm sorry, you're feeling bad, I'm going to comfort you. No, the word means to come alongside of the person and encourage them. Tell them, hey, isn't this great? Let the church say amen. Isn't this great? Yeah, this is really good. This is good. This is why I came to church. I've got real encouragement now. I can go out knowing that, you know, the trumpet may be out of the box. 
it, it may be that Jesus is already putting on his robe and getting ready to come. I don't know. I don't know the details. But the dead in Christ and those who are alive and remain, who are those people that are alive, that are alive and remain? The believers who believe in Jesus, who died for them and rose again. These are saved people. So this next event is not the mark of the, of the Antichrist. It's not the collapse of nations. The next event for the believer is not these events which welcome in the world ruler who then puts his mark on you so you can't buy Starbucks. No. The next event for the believer is to be evacuated out to meet the Lord in the air before this time of tribulation and grief with the signs in the heavens and all these other things take place. Now, for some of you, that may be new teaching. If it is, it's not new now. It's not new now. Comfort one another with these words, right? The events that are yet to take place for you and for all believers, if you're a believer this morning, it's the best news you've ever had, is not that you're going to have to go through this Holocaust. And it will be a Holocaust. If you're in Egypt and you're a Christian, look what they did to that CBS beautiful girl. You know, they almost raped her if it weren't for some Islamic woman women who jumped on top of her. And the CNN guy, uh, they pushed the camera in his face. Uh, if you're a Christian in a Muslim nation, they'll cut your tongue out. We've been working in Muslim nations for 50 years. We know a little bit about it. I've crossed the Atlantic 118 times. This is not something out of some crazy cartoon. This is serious. They hate us. They hate Jesus because we say he's the only way, the only truth, and the only life. Islam believes in the virgin birth. Islam believes in the second coming of Jesus Christ. But he's kind of a footnote. Allah, Muhammad, and everything else is second. But we say that Jesus said he's the way. No salvation in Allah. Muhammad said, pray for me when he was dying, that I might go to heaven. Imagine that. There's no salvation in Buddha or Zoroastrianism or Hinduism with their 360 million gods. Get real. This is Jesus Christ, the only way, the only truth, and the only life. He alone died for my sins. There's no other way but Christ. It's not because we're arrogant, but if you can forgive sins some other way, tell us about it. But God will forgive you. He'll forgive you. Come on. Just say, I've sinned. I'm sorry. Jesus died for me. Rose again. Save me for Jesus' sake. Three words will change your whole life. God save me. And God will do it immediately. Forgive all of your sins forever and you'll go to heaven. So the believer is looking forward to the coming of Christ in the sky. That's why the man could say to me, boy, he was a wiseacre. He didn't know I was a Christian. He said, I'll be here unless he comes. That's tremendous. Now, what is our duty? Three, third, three things. Number one, you've got to be clean. The Bible says in 1 John, he that has this hope in him, listen, church, purifies himself. Now's the application. Sermon should make you think, make you feel, and get you to do something. If you are doing what you know, right this minute, the Holy Spirit will convict you. You're tolerating something in your life that you know offends God. And when they sing and raise their hands, it makes you a little uncomfortable. Not only because it's not your style. It isn't my style either. But it's not the style. It's what they're singing about. And when they sing that, you're just kind of a little 
uneasy because you haven't said to God, I'm sorry for what I'm doing now. I'm sorry that I'm not the kind of Christian I ought to be. Lord, clean me up. Wash me. I'll be whiter than snow in your precious blood. The Bible says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. Second, be cautious that you live a life that's not without blame. That you live a life as best God gives you the grace of God to be so that you can be a Christian who conscientiously, that means intentionally, that means deliberately, this week you're going to live for Christ. Only one life will soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will last. And thirdly, share your faith. Tell something about your life or about your Jesus to somebody else. We have a little thing called bring a friend. 85% of all the people that find Christ in the Billy Graham crusade or Franklin crusade have been brought by somebody else. I'm through, I promise. Take this little card and put down the people that you really want to be saved and pray for them every day and invite somebody. This is a killer church. You're out of space this morning. I mean, you're not even six months old. How absolutely incredible that God has brought you together, that you're unified, that you love Jesus. This is, it's absolutely incredible. God has brought you for such a time as this. Don't just sit and soak. Just don't say, okay, we're the right size. Maybe. But think of the thousands of people, thousands of people who have never been prayed for, like Bertha, who never have been invited, who have never been told, God loves you. Christ saved me. I'm not better than you are, but I know that my sins are forgiven and I'm going to heaven. Trust him. I'll pray for you. How can I help you? Ask questions of other people and communicate your faith. Because a Christian that's not living the Christian life is terrible. You'd be better to denounce Jesus and get away from the Christians than to live a lousy life and mix with us and make it confusing for everybody else. Let me give you a story. We came here. We were in Florida. We were in California. We came here, right? It took us 10 hours yesterday. So Paul picks us up at the airport. He says, we have a little food at the house. So we go to the house. It's been a long day for us, right? We're up at 5 a.m. yesterday. We come to the house. There's a fire in a fireplace. There's hot soup. I love soup. There's a baked potato. There's shredded cheese. I mean, it was really cool. Tablecloth. The children are so well-mannered. They take after their mother. Say amen. <laughs> Candles burning. It was incredible. Suppose when I got off the plane, Carol wasn't with me. Suppose I was with, and we were in Hollywood, California. I had some floozy-looking person. I just picked her up. And I tell a lion, say, or your mother, whatever, whatever. Instead of showing up with my bride after 54 years, I'm with some strange, horrible woman, still married to Carol, but carrying on with his other woman. What do you think the children would have said? Where's Emma? Who's this lady? I would be committing adultery. 
The Bible says, if as a Christian, I live in sin that I know about, and I don't confess it, God says, you're committing adultery. It's called in the Bible, spiritual adultery. To be fooling with, or associating with, at the expense of my love with Jesus Christ, is being unfaithful to God. Child of God, get rid of whatever is impeding you and is an obstacle to your true love for Jesus Christ. None of us is perfect. All of us are in process. Say amen. But this morning as you sit here, say to yourself, God, I really want to worship you. I really want to yield to you. Lord, take out of my life anything that would cause me to be a stumbling block or have a poor witness to other people because people are looking at you. You'll meet more people this week that don't know Jesus than Paul would if he visited 24 hours a day. You are the church. He's to train you to do the work of ministry. This is your church. Say amen, right? So you will be the impact. So don't show up with another one. Don't live out of fellowship with Jesus. Live a holy life. Give yourself completely to him. And if you need to do that this morning, do it right now. I'm not asking you to get up, come down. But right now in your heart say, all to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. And give yourself again to Jesus. And start again in the new beginning of what this church is. It's a new beginning. And the promises of God are wow. And your future, you will not know what God's going to do with this church. He's waiting for one church in this city to say, it's all for Jesus. We're all for him. Bring down the power and use us mightily. Amen. Give him. Thank you for being so gracious. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us to your family. And for giving up your son for us to take away our sins, to be our savior so that we'll never be lost and that heaven is our home to come. We pray that we shall live lives that are conscientiously and purposely pure and holy. Cleanse us from sin and fill us every day with your Holy Spirit. And I pray, Lord, that you'll keep your hand of blessing. It's already here upon this congregation. And the pastor that serves it, and Randy who assists, and all the people that volunteer. What a glorious celebration this spring. Keep your hand of blessing upon it. And do exceeding abundantly above all we ask or think. We pray in Jesus' precious name. And all the people say amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. For yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Say it. Amen. Thank you, church. Good morning, and God bless you.